welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Mario Mastin. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. Last Sunday, rather, we began uh, with uh, a word from God's Word that I, that I really sense is for us as a church this year, and, um, and I want to continue in that vein for some weeks to come. I'm not exactly sure how long. Um, but I, I really believe that this is a word that the God uh, wants to impress on us at the beginning of the year. And it's really just that dynamic reality that Paul speaks about when he says we are being built together. That we, as a community of God's people, and this is true not just of us, it's true of every assembly, every gathering, every local church of God's people across this planet, is being built together by God. There's something dynamic that God is doing uh, when his people gather together. And I don't just mean on Sunday, I mean in a community of people under the headship of Jesus. Um, But it's not just recognizing that God is in the process of building us together, spiritually speaking, but it's also a commitment that I believe God wants from us to engage with him as he's building. That we aren't um, in a passive state. That God has called us to respond actively to what he's doing and to participate with him in the building process. Because as Paul told us last week, God's doing that because he wants to dwell with and live among his people. You go to the very end of the story, and we'll be doing that in some weeks to come, right at the end of the book, this book, it tells us that that is going to be our reality in God's kingdom forever. We'll get there in some weeks to come. But I want to read again that foundational passage, and I'll probably do that each week, even though I'm really not going to preach primarily from that passage today, as I did not last week. But I want to just read this to you. And it's from, if you weren't here last week, it's from Paul's letter to the the Christians in Ephesus. And this is what he says in the second chapter, and it's verses 19 to 22. And he says, you are. And let me just say this. It's not just Paul writing this. It's the Holy Spirit speaking that to us this morning. You are no longer foreigners and aliens. I always love that as somebody who was once a foreigner and an alien. But I'm now a fellow citizen Uh, with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, you too are being built together to become something. And what is that something we are being built together to become? A dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. That's why I used the word dynamic, speaking of this reality uh, a few minutes ago, because there's something ongoing here. We're not in a static state. We are in a dynamic place of being built together by God as a place for him to dwell through his spirit. It's God who's doing the building. And in him and only in him, we are being built together to become that place where the Holy Spirit hangs out, where the Holy Spirit lives. Because as we are told in the book of Acts, he no longer lives in temples made with hands, right? That's not where God lives anymore. He lives in his people through the Spirit. We are called to join him in what he's building and uh, what it is that he wants us to become. But we're called to join him in that building, not to do something apart from him. You know, Solomon wrote this a long time ago. Though some biblical scholars question whether it was Solomon that wrote this, but I'm going to go with Solomon this morning. Solomon knew a lot about building. Because what did Solomon do? 
All right, this is not, that's not a rhetorical question. What did Solomon do? He built the temple, right? He built the place for God to dwell. And when he finished building that temple, the glory of God came in a manifest and majestic and powerful way and filled the temple that Solomon had constructed. He built the household of God in Jerusalem. David was not allowed to build that house because David had shed so much blood. His son Solomon was called to build the temple where God would dwell. So Solomon knew something about building a house for God to dwell. And this is what he said, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, you can have the most skilled set of builders but they will be building in vain so last week we thought about what it means to be being built together by God this morning I want to think about how that happens what that kind of looks like as we engage with God and with one another and um, so that we can become that temple that rises, that holy temple, that place where God dwells. And, and to do that this morning, I want to look at another passage of Scripture that Paul wrote to another letter, uh, to another church, I beg your pardon, to another group of God's people. Uh, and they were Christians living in a city called Corinth, which was not really a great place to live at the time that they were living there. Um, but to those people, Paul wrote a couple of letters, and in the first of those letters, he says something really important, and I want to kind of drill down on that this morning. Um, and just to put it in some context, uh, the, the passage we're going to read from 1 Corinthians is one where Paul is dealing with the reality of both diversity and unity in the body of Christ. Now, those are two things that seem to be kind of counterintuitive. You have unity on one hand, diversity on the other, but in the body of Christ, Paul says there's both diversity in unity, and he's dealing with that uh, big issue in a very particular way in 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, and Gordon Fee, the biblical scholar, says Paul emphasizes the need in the passage we're going to look at for uh, the diversity of gifts and manifestations in the unity of the one spirit. Now, spiritual gifts is not my subject this morning, although Paul deals with that in the verses leading up to the passage that we're going to begin reading this morning. So it's 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, and this is what Paul says. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all of its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is made up of, <clears throat> now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body. God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Let me read that portion again. I think that's, But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we are treated with special modesty. 
while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given every honor, and has given greater honor, rather, to the parts that lacked, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So what is Paul saying here? How does what he says here apply to us and this idea of us being built together in Christ as a people? How does it relate to that process of us engaging with God in what he's doing? Well, I think Paul makes at least three things clear here. Probably makes a lot more than three things clear. But there are three things I want to drill down on this morning that I think that are applicable to this idea of us being built together in the way that Paul says we are being to become something, namely the place where God dwells uh, in that passage in Ephesians that we ran at, uh, read at the beginning. The first of those things I want you to see is this. In the body of Christ, or the household of God, each person is indispensable. Each person is indispensable. Let me read verses 12 to 14 again. This is what Paul says. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. Now the body is made up, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. You know, if you read Paul's letters, he uses a number of different images in the New Testament. And there's 13 of them that he wrote. So there, there are a lot of letters to read. And he uses different terminology, really, to refer uh, to the same thing. Now, here in this passage, he's using the image of the body. Uh, elsewhere, uh, or the analogy of the body. Elsewhere, he uses phrases like household or temple, or he refers to the church. And I want to say to you this morning that those terms really are interchangeable. And I'm going to be using all of them this morning, which is why I'm saying in the body of Christ or the household of God, each person is indispensable. Now, it's important to recognize what Paul's saying here is that there is one body, right? But he's not arguing for the fact that there's one body. He's arguing from the fact that there's one body. That's already an established reality in Christ. And Paul's not arguing here uh, for uniformity. When he talks about unity, he's not talking about everybody being the same. That was a problem they had in the church at Corinth. People trying to foist an idea of uniformity on the church. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a oneness in Christ, an indivisibility in Christ that makes us one with one another. We're united through the Spirit with him. But remember, Paul's also talking here about the many about the reality that there's diversity in the body of Christ. So the first thing I want you to see by way of application this morning is this. We are different. Have you noticed that? Look around. In front of you, behind you, beside you, we are different. We come in different shapes and sizes, and I don't just mean physiologically either. We are different. We have different personalities, different talents, different gifts. We certainly are different physically speaking. We are different. But we are vital to each other. This is so important to get a hold of if we are going to be built together in the, God, in the way that God wants us to do. That we are vital to each other. Now what do I mean by vital? I mean two things. One, that we are important to each other. We're vital in that sense, but I also mean vital in the sense of life-giving, that we are life to one another in the body of Christ. The truth is that the body is made up of many parts, not just one. 
just like the human body, which Paul is using here. And I guess this was a pretty common analogy to be used uh, in antiquity, the idea of the physical body. And you think about the physical body as Paul lays it out here. You've got, you know, just those different aspects of the body, the hands, the feet, the arms, the legs, the ears, the nose, the mouth, these different aspects of the body. They're different, but they function together. They have been built together into a whole. And for the body to function effectively and operate as it should, each aspect of the body needs to be playing the part that it was designed and created to play, right? Paul's using that analogy, and he's speaking about the reality of the church. He is saying that each person is shaped by God to be a purposeful part of the body. You have been shaped by God to be a part of his body, of his household, of his church, of the temple that he is building. Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians, in chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What does that tell us there? It tells us that we've been shaped, crafted. We are God's workmanship. We're not the product of random chance. God has actually shaped us. He's formed us. And more than that, he's prepared us to do good works that he prepared in advance. So we fit perfectly in our shape with the purpose for which God created us. That's not an accident. That's part of God's creative design. We get a clear picture here that each one of us is uniquely crafted by God. For a God-given purpose. And that purpose is realized as we step into that which God prepared in advance for us to do. And we have been placed, Paul says here, in the body of Christ to function in accord with that purpose. For the good of the whole. For what Paul says refers to in 1 Corinthians 12, and I think it's verse 7, as the common good. So using that analogy of the body to describe what it means to be members of God's household or God's temple or God's church, we've been placed by him where he wants to place us in order to do what it is that God wants us to do. So there's an implication that comes with that. Paul says we cannot say any longer that we don't belong to one another. We can't say we don't need one another. The truth is we're vital to each other. This is how God has designed his church. And the church of Jesus Christ is unlike any other building out there. Why? Well, because it's being constructed by God, for one. Because it's the place where God's spirit dwells, too. Because it's an organic reality. The church is not an organization. It is an organism, spiritually speaking, filled with the life of God himself. Remember, last week we referred to what Peter described each member of the body of Christ as being, and that description was living stones. Now, stones are inanimate objects. They don't have life in and of themselves, right? But we, the analogy that's used, the metaphor that's used is that we are stones, but we're alive. We're living stones, stones that have been made alive, placed in to the household of God, fit exactly as God desires for us to be fit. To play the part that we've been called to play in his body. Made alive by his spirit. And I said a moment ago, each person is different. But each one of us is essential to the functioning 
of the body of Christ. And where the body of Christ becomes real for people and not just an abstract universal reality is in the local church. That's where the body of Christ takes on shape in an experiential way. You can't experience the body of Christ by just saying, well, all believers are a part of the universal body, so why do I need the local church? You need the local church because it's a place where that universal reality becomes present and practical and experiential. And in this sense, each one of you is indispensable. Paul even uses that language in the passage which we just read when he refers to the weaker part of the body. And he uses that language that's translated there in the NIV by the translators. It's indispensable. Can't work without. Can't be done without basically is what indispensable means. The body of Christ cannot function properly and will never function optimally. It will never function as it's supposed to do unless each part, which means each person, is being and doing what they were created to be and do. We will only be who God has created us to be when we are being and doing what God has called us to do in relationship with one another. The local church is the meaningful experiential expression of the body of Christ. It's the place where we are being built together. There's nowhere else where that's happening. It happens in the context of the church, Paul says in Ephesians, and he gives practical expression to that here in 1 Corinthians 12. He tells us what that looks like, how we get there. So let's get real about this truth and apply it to us. If this is your church, and I know we have some visitors here this morning and others that might be, but if this is your church, you are a vital part of it. You're a vital part of what God is doing in building us together. Who God created you to be and where he's placed you in the body, the gifts, the talents, the desires, the passions, the abilities, just the shape that God's given to you is vital. It's vital for you, therefore, to play the part that God has called you to play. If God has called you to be here, you are indispensable. Now, let me just say something in case somebody's thinking, wow, that's weird theology. What about the sovereignty of God? Let me just park there for a second and kind of slay that dragon quickly, and then I'll move on. I get the fact that God is the sovereign Lord. He doesn't need any of us. He's not incomplete without us. All right? He is the preexistent, eternal God that holds all things together by the word of his power. He's nothing more now than he was in the past. In fact, even to talk about past, present, and future, those are terms that, in which we understand the temporal reality that we live with. God is the eternal is. So he lacks nothing, and he isn't something more because he has us now. We are something more because we have him. So I'm not saying we're indispensable to God. If he can get a donkey to speak, if he can say the stones will cry out, if he can part the Red Sea, he can do whatever he wants, okay? He doesn't need me or you in order to do that. However, here's the thing. It's not that God needs us. God wants us. His love created us. And his love gave his son to call us back into a relationship that he created us to have with him when we screwed the thing up. God longs for us. He desires us. His heart is passionate with love for us. But he doesn't need us. Okay? But we need one another. We are indispensable to one another. We are vital to one another in the body of Christ. And if we don't capture that, we don't capture what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, and we will not be built together in the way that God wants to wants to build us together. If God's called you here, you are indispensable. 
Chad tipped into this a little bit last week. Don't buy into the lie that you don't belong. He read a passage last week from a book he's reading prior to communion that really spoke to that reality. Don't buy into the lie that you don't belong or that you're not needed. That's not true for any believer in the body of Christ, not just in this church, anywhere. That is a lie. The truth is, you are needed. You are indispensable where God has placed you. You know, the enemy propagates that lie. You know why? Because he wants us to second-guess ourselves. And when we second-guess ourselves, we land up drawing back so often. We isolate, then we stagnate spiritually, and we're not built together in the way that God wants us to be. That is a lie. The enemy wants to mess with God's purpose in your personal life, and he wants to mess with God's purpose and the part you have to play in the corporate life into which God has called you. Because he can do nothing about your salvation if you're in Christ. That is a done deal secured by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the grace of God that covers you. He can do nothing about that. But you know what he can do? He can mess with the experiential reality of you stepping into the purpose that God has for you. And he can incapacitate you if you give him space to experience what otherwise is your inheritance and your birthright in Jesus. It happens in relationship with one another, in community together. You have an important life-giving part to play. If this is not your local church and you're here this morning, the same is true for you in the church to which you belong. You have an important life-giving part to play. You are vital to the people that you're in relationship with. But I'm speaking to this church this morning because this is the church to which I belong. And I'm in relationship with you guys. And this is the reality. So you are not dispensable. So don't act like it. Oh, I, I don't really have anything to give. I mean, you know, I'll leave it to the people that stand up front or the people that have these evident giftings. I don't really have anything to contribute. I'm really not needed, and I'm, I'm to be honest, I'm pretty dispensable. No, you're not. So often that's laced and rooted in self-pity, and that stuff does not come from God. Get rid of self-pity. It's not worth wasting the time on it. Yes, we are different, but we're vital to each other. I won't make you say that this morning, but you can look around the people that are around you. You are vital to them, and they are to you. And I don't just say this to make you feel good this morning. This is what the Word of God teaches about who we are in relationship with one another in the church. It's what sets the church apart from any other group on the face of this planet. And by the way, our differences are part of the vitality of God's creativity, aren't they? Even the differences that you don't like and that I don't like, they are part of God's created design. Can you imagine how boring it would be if we were all the same? Some of you don't look convinced about that. You think everybody should be like you. No. God wants us to be different. Iron sharpens iron. And when that happens, sparks fly. But you know what happens? Something gets shaped. Christ gets shaped in us. So I just say this to you this morning. If you're made to encourage, then encourage. If you're made to help, then help others. If you're made to teach, teach others. If you're made to counsel, counsel others. If you're made to prophesy, prophesy to others. I mean, if you're meant to lead, lead others. Whatever it is, if you're meant to serve, serve others. Now, I know we're all called to serve, but you get the picture. We are vital to each other. Okay, the second thing. I don't want to flog a dead horse. I think I've said that enough. <laughs> 
Second thing is this. In the body of Christ, the household of God, each person is interdependent. Paul says this. God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Paul makes it clear that the one who has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, has done so, as it says here, just as he wants. And that there are many of them, but there's only the one body. In other words, it's God that gets to call the shots. He arranges the parts of the body the way that he wants them to be, not the way that we want them to be. God gets to call the shots because it's his body. It's his people. It's his church. It's his temple that he's building. Not ours. Now, we're a part of it because we've been redeemed and reconciled and called into it. But it's his church, his body, his temple. We are the many, though. We are the many that make up that thing that God is building. We're not separate from one another. We are interdependent with one another. We're not separate from one another. We are interdependent with one another. This means exactly this. To be interdependent means to depend on one another. It means to be mutually dependent. That enthusiastic, I'm spraying. Excuse me. God has set it up that way. We are to be mutually dependent. Now let me make clear what I'm not saying. Mutual uh, interdependence is not codependence. Okay? Let's just make a distinction between those two for a moment. Okay? Because interdependence... And to be interdependent is functional. And it leads to the strengthening of the body where we depend on one another. And it leads to personal and corporate spiritual health. That's what happens when we're interdependent. When we're codependent, it leads to dysfunctionality and personal and corporate sickness. Whereas interdependence means recognizing that we need one another so that we can grow up into Christ and become mature and build up the body so that we cannot say, or the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. That's the recognition of interdependence. That I can't say that I don't need you. I do need you. And I need to depend on you. And you need me. You need to depend on me. But codependence means attaching ourselves to others who will support and enable our own dysfunction. Whether that dysfunction comes in the form of some kind of an addiction or immaturity or irresponsibility or spiritual stagnation. Codependence is getting connected to somebody else who will enable that dysfunction. We've not been called to be codependent, but we have been called to be, and we are in the body of Christ, interdependent. We're in an interdependent relationship where we encourage and strengthen one another. But if we're not in that relationship, there is no encouragement in strengthening because we've isolated ourselves from the recognition that we need one another and we depend on one another. And there's a mutual dependence there because we are now in Christ. And that's the point. We're on a journey together. Not alone. In the last, uh, last trimester, one of the groups I was in, we, we did uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the book. And that story is a phenomenal story. It's kind of an allegory, right, of a guy on a journey. And um, he's on his way to the celestial city. But in that, and, and the guy's name is Christian, but in the journey, he meets all these different people that he needs to depend on in order to make it to where God's leading him. It's a picture of this, of interdependence, of needing one another and relying on one another. 
So if we're going to engage in the process of being built together, we have to recognize we are different, but we are reliant on each other. You know, nobody captures this for me better in the New Testament than the guy that wrote the book of Hebrews, whoever that person was, man or woman, I don't know. But whoever wrote it captured what I'm talking about here beautifully. Listen to these words from Hebrews 10, 24, 25. You'll see them up on the screen there. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Let me just park there for a moment. It's not the, not the emphasis I want to make this morning, but I do want to just say this. That's what we need to do in the world that we're in. We need to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Okay? For he who promised is faithful. Look, the hope that we have, the world does not recognize. Okay? It belittles, it mocks. Hold unswervingly to that hope because the one who promised us that hope, he's faithful. Then he says this, and let us consider how we, not let, us cons- let me consider how I, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. We spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us consider, he says, how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. And how do we do that? He basically tells us. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So some are in the habit of doing, been there, done that, bought the t-shirt. I don't really need the church. I, I just, me and Jesus, I'm good. That is every bit as much a lie as the lie that you are not indispensable to what God is doing in the church to which he's called you. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us encourage one another. And then he tells us the character of that. He says, and all the more as you see the day with a capital D approaching. He's talking about the day of Christ. The day when Jesus will come again. And he says, as you see that day getting closer, and it's closer today than it was yesterday. And if he doesn't come today, it'll be closer tomorrow than it is today, right? As you see the day approaching, he said, don't pull back. Don't act as if you don't need one another and you're not dependent on one another. Press in. Meet together all the more. Encourage one another all the more. Spur one another on to love. The kind of love we were talking about last week that Jesus said is the new command that I give to you, right? You must love one another as I have loved you. Spur one another on to that kind of love and the good deeds that make up the kingdom. We do this together. We trust God for the hope because we know he's faithful. But we rely on one another to spur one another on. When we feel discouraged, it means something to have a brother or sister in Christ, a friend that you're in fellowship with in the church, call you, send you a text, send you an email, come and put their arm around you and say, let's have coffee together. It means something when that happens. Something's being built when that takes place. And remember, God's prepared in advance a whole bunch of stuff for you to do. I don't pretend to know what it is God's called for you to do. But God will make that clear to you. He doesn't play mind games with us. He loves us. He'll reveal to you what it is that he has for you to do. Now, I'm not saying he's going to give you a blueprint. He doesn't. Listen, we've been called to walk by faith, not by sight. So he doesn't give us like kind of a a script up front of everything that's going to happen. Part of the journey is trusting him, exercising faith toward him. But he will reveal to you what it is he has for you to do. Do it. And remember, it's always going to be in the purpose of God in relationship with others, not in isolation from them. We meet together because 
The Spirit of God is present when we do. What did Jesus promise? When two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. Now, that's either true or it isn't. And I believe it's true because Jesus is true and faithful. When we gather in his name, whether it's two of us, 22 of us, 2,022 of us, God is present. We gather together because we want to worship God and we've been commanded and called to do that and to do it together as his people. But we come together to empower one another, to encourage one another, to spur one another on. And look, we all need spurring on. And in some seasons, we are being spurred on, and in other seasons, we're spurring on. But those things only happen when we're in relationship with one another. All right. Made that point. Last one. The body of Christ, the household of God, in the body of Christ, the household of God, each person is interconnected. It's the last thing I want you to see. God has combined the members of the body so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Now, this, this is so important. If one part suffers, we all suffer. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. But let me tell you, you can't get there naturally. You can't. This is a spiritual reality that happens in Christ when we're in relationship with one another. There is a profound, hear me this morning, there is a profound and powerful spiritual link that unites you and I in Jesus. And this is something God has done. It's profound, it's powerful, it goes beyond my ability to articulate it really effectively, but that is the truth that Paul is relaying here. That we are linked to one another by an unbreakable cord. It's a spiritual reality in Christ. And that unites us together. The result of that is that in the body of Christ there should be no division, Paul says. And the other thing he says is we should have equal concern for one another. No division and equal concern for one another. Boy, if the history of the church had taken those two realities alone and nothing else and walked those out, how different the last 2,000 years of the history of the church would have been. No division and equal concern for one another. You know that's not been the character so often of the history of the church. But past doesn't have to be present or future. We don't have to buy in to the dysfunction of the past in the present or in the future in terms of where we're going in God, by His grace. I've already said we can't do this naturally. I am completely bankrupt to be able to live that way apart from Jesus. The connection that we have through the Spirit of God is so strong that we actually have the capacity to live in unity with one another. Not uniformity. Doesn't mean we're all going to see things the same way. We're always going to agree about it. No, we're not. That's part of the diversity. It's part of the richness. It's part of how we grow. But we have the capacity to walk in unity with one another and with others in the body of Christ because of what the Holy Spirit has done in terms of linking us together in Jesus under his headship. And we have the capacity to... I don't think empathize is a sufficient word, but we have the capacity to empathize, to identify with one another, to care for one another in a genuine way, empowered by the love of God without partiality. So that we don't say, oh, yeah, I can, I can care for that person, but that person, that's a bridge too far. No, we have the capacity to walk in unity and care for one another. In an equal way, Paul says here. There's a spiritual equality about this. God's not a respecter of persons, and neither should we be. 
We are different, but we are affected by each other. And God wants it to be that way. If we're not affected by one another, then we fail to understand that spiritual link that unites us together in Christ. It means that we complement one another. We haven't been called to compete with one another. And by the way, we haven't been called to compete with other expressions of the body of Christ. With other local churches. Chad and I meet, you know, uh, once a month at Mission Maine over at East Point with, I mean, there's probably 24, 25 pastors. There were a few less this time because it was stormy when we met. But we meet the first Wednesday of the month. For mutual edification, to share with one another, to lean and depend on one another, to encourage one another. Because we all as pastors share a similar dynamic. And so we are able to empathize and encourage one another and build one another up and share and give and receive from one another. Why? Because this is the way God has constructed the body of Christ. So that we complement. Well, what's true on the larger level is true in the local church. We are affected by one another and we're supposed to be. You know, I said a moment ago, Paul talks about unity and diversity in this passage. Paul said in another place, again, it's in Ephesians. This book is just keeps coming at me from so many different directions this year. Ephesians 4.3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. We have been made one. We have unity, right? We don't have to strive to get it. We have unity in Christ. What we have to do is work to keep it. Because our stuff gets in the way. That's what happens. That's the history of the church. Stuff happens. And experientially, it affects the reality that's our positional truth in Christ, which is that we are united and one in Him. But all too often, believers allow stuff to happen. The word's got a, the scripture's got a perfect word to describe this, and it's short, and it's three little letters, and it's sin. Not kind of a word that people like to talk about much these days. It's like kind of like that's out of vogue, even in the church. The truth is, sin stuff happens. So we have to, wa- this is why we have, we need the fruit of the Spirit, right? So that we can make every effort to keep that unity that's ours in Christ through the bond of peace. Because we're linked together in God. We're able to do something, you're able to do something you could never do and we could never do apart from him and apart from one another. And that is have this equal concern for each other. I want to draw to a close with this. This means that one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. That's quite some language Paul uses. He's saying if one part of the body is suffering, the entire body suffers with it. And if one part is honored, the entire body is to rejoice with it. Now, that, that's, that's something beyond natural. That's beyond natural. That is not what we do. So often, naturally speaking, if somebody's suffering, hey, you know. Somebody's honored. The ego struggles with that, doesn't it? Ooh, ooh, man, that's tough. Now, we would, of course, never admit this, and we would never really show this outwardly, but it's what's going on in the heart. Somebody else gets honored, and it's like, man, we struggle with that. Like, why not me? Who's that person to receive that recognition? You know, naturally speaking, we're not able to do these things, but in Jesus, we can So that when someone suffers, we can enter into that place of identification with them because we are linked with them through the Holy Spirit. And we do it with a heart that longs to meet them in a place of Christ-inspired empathy and genuine love and concern. And then when somebody is honored, we can rejoice in that and bless that and not 
allow the ego to enter in and seep in and distort in our heart our rejoicing and our joy. But we can genuinely say, thank God that that person has been blessed and honored in that way. And we enter into it. And God gives us the capacity to do that. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I, I, that can only happen in the way that Paul's talking about here in the body of Christ. In the way that he's talking about it. He's saying there is a strength, a visceral connection. A visceral connection, almost like from the gut. We are connected to one another. There's a connection that can't be broken. And that connection is so strong that when one suffers, we all feel that. When one is honored, we all rejoice and have joy in that. It's the Holy Spirit that connects us together and enables us to do that. And you know, when we're living in that place, we're living in a place of freedom. Freedom to enter in. Freedom to honor. Freedom to care. So yeah, we're different from one another. But we are and we should be affected by one another. So, as I close, how do we, end, how do we engage with God? How do we build that house that God's building? How do we get to be a part of that holy temple that's rising in the Lord? How does all of that become real in the local church where we are? It becomes real when we recognize that we're indispensable to one another. When we recognize that we're interdependent on one another. And when we recognize that we're interconnected with one another. And these are all things that as God has done for us in Christ through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when we walk that out, then what Paul says in Ephesians 4 that I read to you last week becomes true, and it's this. We will in all things grow up to him, into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament. Look at that terminology there. Every supporting ligament. He's basically saying every part. Joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. And that's how God goes about building us together. Okay, let's stand. So can I uh, call the ministry?